want to start with just a brief outline of what I'm planning to do with this kind of the, the four seminars on ethnographic dreams, anthropological ethics, and contingency in Southwest China. Uh, and these are all classic topics in our discipline, and like all good classics, I think they're fairly sophisticated topics that we'll surely never get fully to the bottom of. Um, they're never going to be topics with just one side to them, or a topic that can be fully described or resolved. Um, but instead, they give us uh, what Levi Strauss famously called food for thought, and invite us to think penetratingly about complex experiences, such as dreams, complex notions like ethics, and complex phenomena like contingency in the world. So basically, um, as Kitty said, I'm going to be doing four seminars based on my own fieldwork amongst a group called the Nusu. That's their own sort of language term. It means literally the black people. Uh, in Chinese, they're called the Liangshanizu. So they're a group that's located um, both in Sichuan and Yunnan provinces in what's known as the sort of Liangshan or Cool Mountains region. And I was always working on the Yunnanese side of the border um, in this area around the county of Nima. Uh, with peoples that had migrated from the Sichuan side about 120 to 150 years ago, and they migrated due to uh, sort of clan and lineage warfare, um, although they don't sort of usually openly admit to that, but that, that was sort of the historic reason for it. And this is a, the Nusuar Tibeto-Burman group. Uh, let's see, they, they're highland peoples, they live in remote forested mountain ranges, and they're both animal pastoralists and Swedish agriculturalists. Um, the main sort of dietary staples are buckwheat, so that gives you an idea of elevation. So the Norse history is very long, and it's also contested amongst specialists. Uh, one thing that we do know, though, is that they're actually having more Burman influences in their language and culture than they have Tibetan influences. So most likely, um, a lot of historians say the Norse were the nobility strata of the Nanjal kingdom. So I can make this happen. There we go. Uh, which it, it literally means Southern Zhao in Chinese, and this was a famous rival polity to the Tang Dynasty in the 8th and 9th centuries that was based at the southern fringes of China and to the east of Tibet. And over time, the Nanjiao Kingdom became the Kingdom of Dali, which is a, a current location still, so it's the name of the place in China, and this was still being ruled by Tibeto-Burman groups, and it was lasted until it was overthrown by the Mongol Yuan Dynasty in the 13th century. So the Mongols actually sent soldiers down to this, that, that far down south. Now, there are many remarkable overlaps in Nulsu's social organization and language with the Kachin of Highland Burma, uh, made famous through, just to sort of toss some, some things that you, um, made famous through Edmund Leach's book of that same name, and you'll maybe undoubtedly encounter this volume sometime during the course of anthropology studies for the students uh, here. And perhaps um, the most notable overlap to the Kachin work is the traditional Nulsu custom of keeping slaves, which was made famous in China since the democratic reforms of 1956-7 that dismantled Nulsu slavery, and also pinned a label onto the Nulsu as being the exemplary slave society of China. And this label fit in with the Marxian evolutionary scale of social progress that China was following, together with Lewis Henry Morgan's three stages of human progress as outlined in the 19th century volume Ancient Society. So these texts have been translated into Chinese for quite some time, and they're known about. And the interesting thing actually about anthropology in China is it's been used as a political tool since the 1950s actively. So in the popular consciousness, there are some bits and bobs of anthropology sort of floating around, particularly with the, the minority groups such as, such as these in Southwest China. So I'm not going to be able to go into much detail here about the history of anthropology in China. Uh, I hope I might have the chance to cover that with you sometime in the future. But I'm instead going to be focusing on the unique cosmology, social organization, and the, what I'm calling here the contingency of life, amongst Nulsu, whose livelihoods pivot around thoughts about, as well as the actual practice of luring, capture, slave raiding, hunting, warfare, including ritualistic battles with ghosts. And whether or not a Nulsu person might experience something like being captured has traditionally had everything to do with how well that person knew his or her genealogy, meaning the family tree with a list of male ancestors' names that covered the range of often 15 to 30 generations back in time. So the first thing that a Nulsu child learns, even today, is to recite the patrilineal genealogy to show his or her place in a larger society. And the reason why is that if you're on the road somewhere and, and you came across another Nulsu person that didn't recognize you and you couldn't recite your genealogy or open to being captured as a slave. 
But in the very recent past, meaning up to the mid-1950s, uh, these recitations then had the protective purpose. Um, and it actually was true even, even for adults, because a lot of the slaves that were captured, they were from outside groups. So they weren't able to speak most of the language. So it was, you know, sort of protected in a double sense of being able to speak the language and speak it in a particular kind of way. So for the Norse's social status, um, being a slave or not, for instance, it means everything. And the Norse have a special kind of kinship organization, uh, which is known as a lineage. Again, for the newcomers to anthropology, I'm just going to breeze through this a little bit. Um, you'll, you would definitely be hearing a lot about this in relation to Evans Pritchard's famous study on the Nuar of the Southern Sudan, and conveniently, Nosu sounds a lot like Nuar, so it should make it kind of easy to remember. Um, what's fairly, whoops, I hopped ahead, that's alright, because we're here now anyway. What's fairly unique, however, to Nosu is that their social organization is based on, uh, based on specifically ranked lineages. Um, and which, what this means is that some Nosu people are born into higher ranked lineages than others. There's an ability strata of lineages, it's often referred to as the Black Nosu, this is a translation of a Chinese term, um, but it's also linked up to the Nosu idea that No means black, uh, and the lower level Chu, Chu means white in Nosu language, so it is kind of a literal translation of sorts. Uh, there's a commoner strata, this is the White Nosu, and it's made up of several levels to it. Now, I worked mainly with the highest ranked white commoner tier of people. And historically, the people of this rank were considered retainers or vassals to the nobility. And while technically slaves of the nobles, they were often more wealthy than their masters, and they owned slaves. And in fact, the interesting thing is that anyone, including slaves, can own their own slaves if they have the resources to buy them. So um, while the ranks, the ranks are really a bit more, they're not so much about economics as they are just about notional hierarchy. And there's very strict taboos that would keep the different lineages um, separate from each other. So the question being, where did the slaves come from if they were not of Nolsu birth? They were captured from the neighboring groups. Most often they were taken from what is today the majority ethnic group in China known as the Han. They were assimilated into the society as farm laborers, and their children grew up learning the Nolsu language. And that means over the course of the generations, they became part of the lowest slave strata in the society known as the dasi, rather than, so the household slaves, rather than being altogether outsiders. Uh, again, just to pay some quick respects to uh, some classic texts in our discipline, uh, the new anthropologists in the room are probably going to be learning more later about the topics of pollution. Uh, you'll be hearing about Mary Douglas's Purity and Danger, famous book. Um, and the theories and approaches course. And you'd also be hearing about the links between notions of purity, social hierarchy, and caste, and Louis Dumont's classic work, Homo Hierarchicus. Now, the Norse ethnography actually echoes these themes in the sense that these people make huge efforts to attain the purity of their ranked lineages. And some scholars, such as Pang Diao, who's at the Central University of Nationalities, or means of he's even provocatively used the word caste when speaking about the ranked lineages. So, Norse retain the purity of the lineages by following prohibitions, often associated with caste distinctions as we understand them, meaning they do not marry or have sexual relations with Norse outside of their own lineage rank, or if they do, they, they have um, all kind of blood compensation uh, repercussions, including traditionally that both parties in the adulterous situation would have to commit suicide. Um, there's also intermarriage, uh, prohibitions against intermarriage with non-Nulsu, even though that's become more common recently, especially with rural women of Nulsu background and urban men of Han Chinese descent. Every Nulsu person ever knew said they prefer to intermarry with an outsider than to marry a lower-ranking Nulsu. And this is because uh, having a relationship with a lower-ranking Nulsu pollutes the entire lineage. It lowers its rank. It makes it the same as the low-ranking person in the relation in question. So people think that it's tantamount to dragging the lineage down to the slave or near-slave status and makes it non Nulsu and susceptible to being slave-rated ultimately by other Nulsu. The point is not to drop down to that sort of uh, situation. So traditionally, any person who violated these purity taboos, like I said, they were forced to commit suicide, uh, to cleanse the lineage of the stigma. They were also, if they didn't do that, they were forced to move away. There's all kinds of sort of elaborate repercussions I won't go into. Uh, detail here, but it just suffice it to say that it, it was uh, something that, that was completely not supposed to happen. Um, and there's also present-day cases of forced suicides in rural areas, despite the Chinese laws against it. So this means that Nulsu are a good example of what we might call an honor society. 
And one important side of this honor is that they, their birthright lineage ranking as a Mulsu person um, is, is uh, tantamount to sort of how they're immediately notionally conceived of. Um, but alongside of these birthright positions I talked about, there's also a meritocratic or achieved status. Um, and this is something that, that the Mulsu gather through their traditional specialist vocations. So there's certain kinds of vocations. Um, and I'll just quickly enumerate them for you. One is the priest, or text-reading shaman. Another is a mediator of lineage disputes. The next one is a clan leader. I don't have photos for all, I just have a small assortment. There are craftspersons, the person who accumulates wealth without setbacks, and there's also the warrior vocation. So only men can become either the priests or warriors, but women and men can become mediators, clan leaders, craftspeople, or the people that get the wealth without the setbacks. Uh, women may also become an ordinary shaman that doesn't read the text, but this specialty does not attract social status. It's not regarded as a vocation with a seat in society. So in one of the upcoming seminars, I'm going to be speaking more at length about how Mulsu take up challenges uh, that I define as ordeals. Um, and they do this to reach ever higher levels of accomplishment within the vocations. And so through the vocational accomplishments, they will attract honor, fame, and fortune both in the sense of luck and in the sense of material resources. They'll track these things to themselves, their households, and ultimately their own lineages. And although these accomplishments cannot help a person achieve a higher social ranking, they will never move up within the lineage ranks, they can help the person to increase the fame, the position, and social standing, either within the lineage of birth or between lineages that have the same rank as the one you were born into. So the, the movement is, is having to do Climbing the social ladder is with degrees of difference that are specific unto the lineage ranking of birth, ultimately. Um, and then finally, because accomplishments are always made on behalf of the specialist's own lineage, they, they help increase the lineage's fame, position, and social standing amongst, again, other lineages of the same rank. These are your marital partners as well, so it's kind of an important thing to try to... There's a lot of competition over getting a lot more bride wealthier direction. Um, okay. Now, I should point out that Mulsu do not always reach their full potential in attracting honor, fame, and fortune. Some people do have a good job of bringing in these benefits, and other Mulsu fail to do this, and this is an example of what I mean by contingency. So, not all cultural ideals are born out of practice, because not everyone is able, for reasons of talent, dedicated work, or even circumstances just beyond their control, not everyone's so equally able to attract honor, fame, fortune, or anything else that makes up what we might call the good life. In fact, I think the most in-depth ethnographic case studies, what they do is they offer us a window onto these different degrees of human accomplishment, we can say our people's hopes, dreams, aspirations, desires, failures, their stubborn efforts to keep fighting in the face of failure, and many other aspects of life that are contingent simply because they are not guaranteed. So if we were to speak in some kind of philosophical vocabulary, we could say that the contingent aspects of life are not fully conditioned, but they're instead forever in process. We could say they're impermanent. Um, and so just to think about how a person's fame, uh, honor, and fortune are never fixed, they're always open to increasing or falling over time. Um, this, this is something that shows us that contingent elements of life are usually a bit rare to get hold of. And it's maybe not surprising then that rare and contingent elements of life bring social status and prestige, because they're not sort of all over the place. There's not sort of an abundance of them, uh, even though people like to accumulate an abundance of it, so it's opposing principles. And this, at least, is certainly the case with the Nulsa I'm going to be describing. So what I'm now going to do is move ahead and talk about a special idiom that the Nulsu have about the human capacity for luring and capturing fame, fortune, honor, and other great things that are ultimately contingent or rare in nature. And this Nulsu idiom makes a comparison between people and spiders, and it's grounded in the popular notion that when a person loses his or her human soul, and they call it back in the soul-calling rites, the soul is actually seen to take the form of a very tiny white soul spider. So I'll be describing this in, in depth now. Uh, both the priest in my field home, who I call Fiji, this is my nickname for him, and his fellow villagers, they told me that the soul of a living Mulsu person is in fact a soul spider that resides on the outer surface of the human body. 
is visible at times to the naked eye, it resembles the smallest and whitest of newly hatched spiders, and it crawls along the contours of the host's body, occasionally spinning web filaments and making its home there. Now, drawing on his interpretation of the Nolsu priest's script, Fiji said that the soul spider is actually a dual concept at the linguistic level, since the same Nolsu word can alternately mean human soul spider or even soul spider. I'll briefly just flag up the fact that this term, je, is kind of a bookish use of the term, and a slightly um, esoteric one to say a spider, because there is a more common parlance for the actual bug, which is mumimol, so it's not um, linguistically linked. But uh, as far as the priests are concerned, they look at these things and they say, yeah, actually, you know, these characters physically resemble what I'm talking about, and they find the connection. And he added to me that the ancient and modern script forms physically resemble a spider, maybe you can see for yourself. And in fact, the soul spider is a component part of a larger idiom for fate fortune. We'll be talking about this next week. Um, and, I'll, and I'll show you the characters for that next week, too. And that idiom is incorporated into the final chant of uh, the priest's ceremonies to propagate livestock, grains, and other resources in the home. It also underscores the vast fatalistic sense in which nulls are bound together in a web of lineage attachments. So this kind of literary knowledge about the soul spider is understood best by the priests. But Fiji also shared notions about the soul spider with me that are known to priests and laypersons alike. And significantly, they say that the soul spider leads a vulnerably exposed existence because it may fall off of its owner's body and become lost when the owner is frightened, ill, or stumbles while walking. A ghost may also capture the soul spider of a normal suit person who is walking along a mountainous forest path and trapped beneath a stone. These lost soul spiders are ceremonially called back, and they're encouraged to reattach themselves to their owners' bodies, because the fullness of life is only obtained when the Nolsu person literally hosts his or her own soul. Yet, the soul spider is also ideally positioned to ambush anything entering its home, which is the surface of the Nolsu body, plus the soul spider's web filaments that are spun on top of it, so that like an aura, the soul spider's home expands and contracts as the person moves. This is at least conceptually how people see things. Now, in fact, the Nolsu prohibits attaching soul spiders or the web filaments from any given person. You're not supposed to do that. Uh, in the Prohibition Echoes, the taboo on killing actual spiders or disturbing their webs that bear close resemblance to soul spiders and their webs, respectively. And just as this soul moves in line with its human owner, real spiders occasionally move with human homes that are built as log cabins that are taken apart and reassembled when people move to new grounds for the Sweden agriculture and pastoral herding. So what this points to is the fact that the soul spider is actually kind of captive writ large, we could say, and it relies on its owner for maintaining the attachment to the human body, which is its home, but it's also free to move around the home, living out its own condition. So at the level of popular religion, uh, all Nolsu people conceive of, of themselves and of the world as sort of something in which you try to capture fame, fortune, and other great things of the contingent nature, and to be doing this in a spider-like fashion even. So traditional slave raids and warfare tactics in the Nulsu Highlands were built on spider-like strategies of lure and capture, for instance. And there's quite a lot more materials on their hunting practices I won't go into right now, but they also have a lot to do with ambushing, capturing things in baskets that's sort of analogous to spider webs. Okay, so I think what I've done is I've given you enough of a background to the seminars in general and also to the Nulsu people that I can move on to the topic of today's seminar in particular. I just these people are so complicated, I kind of need to give such a backdrop. So, to ask the question, what is an ethnographic dream? Um, it's an old kind of classic idea. It's more just a catchphrase, you could say, in anthropology. It essentially, in, in my understanding at least, refers to the anthropologist's romantic ideal of going out to do fieldwork in some exotic nether reaches of the world and discovering another way of life there. It kind of conjures up Malinowski's ideal of stepping off the veranda and into the world of the natives. <laughs> So probably all anthropologists, if they're honest, have some kind of ethnographic dream underpinning their fieldwork. I mean, we go out and we have some kind of expectation. This is why we uh, write research proposals, I guess. But what I'm going to be talking about here is something a little bit different. Um, it involves it, but it's more than that. I, I want to be talking about the ethnographic dreams of native ethnologists or native anthropologists in China and how they might dovetail with the fieldwork experiences we have in those regions, especially in light of the fact that our discipline uh, is a little bit sort of in the popular consciousness of China for the historic reasons of making the sort of 
ethnic minority nationality projects in the 1950s. This is all kind of recent history. Um, very interestingly, introduced a lot of Western notions, and in fact, a lot of Chinese people talk about that these days. In our schools, we never learn anything about China. We're always learning foreign people's ideas. At least this is a complaint. Sometimes you hear from the teenagers. So today I'm going to be introducing you to some of the experiences, rigors, and even ideals that we have about doing anthropological fieldwork, and I want to pair that with insights into what doing fieldwork means to Native scholars, and to how our two types of fieldwork might actually evolve in tandem. And I'm going to do this by giving you an in-depth ethnographic case study on the ethnographic dream. Uh, so my point is to let you look through the field worker's lens, so to speak, in the course of gathering ethnography and even analyzing it a bit on the spot. Uh, that, that's a signature feature of the anthropological method. We don't just, as anthropologists, gather ethnography and publish it without analyzing or processing the data. That's what uh, ethnologists say they do. Uh, hopefully, we like to do more than this, meaning we analyze, interpret, explain, or somehow process our materials, and we do it in light of anthropological concepts, practice, and hopefully also anthropological ethics, although we get sometimes pushed to the strain of this um, in, in certain parts of the world. So, right. My case study, uh, I, I feel, is especially revealing because it shows the dynamics of doing field work with uh, this person I already mentioned, Fiji, who is both a priest or text reading shaman, I use this term. He's also a native Mulsu scholar at an ethnological institute who was recruited from the village. And he works on the translation of Mulsu religious texts into Mandarin Chinese. And you've seen that happen right here. It's a complex thing. It's a four-stage translation. They go from classical Mulsu to modern Mulsu. That's the job of the guy I knew because he was the only one who knew the classical stuff long enough. Then they go from classical Mulsu into a direct rough Mandarin. And then from the rough Mandarin, they go into the polished Mandarin. And they actually publish the four different versions, so anyone who is able to actually read and understand them all uh, could do so. Although the ironic thing is there's a team of some three or four people, and they can all only understand certain parts of it. Because the one who knows the classical Mulsu, his Mandarin is not up to speed. That's why they have so many. But anyway, okay, so that's how it works. Um, my part, uh, or my study here, is in part actually uh, going to be on a case of an anthropologist studying an ethnologist. That's, that's what I'm going to be talking about. That's me studying about him. Uh, but the case study didn't actually unfold in the lab or the office, uh, despite this photo that was taken at the tail end of the field work. It actually took place in a rural Mulsu village in the remote mountaintops of Yunnan province, where Fiji, as I'm going to show, waged a battle with his institute and aimed to recapture his lost fame, fortune, and material resources again in the spider-like fashion. So let me start with a couple lines of background information to the case. Before I met with Fiji, he'd lived through about a year of work at the Institute where he was troubled by the dynamics with the head of his translation team, and I call that person Teacher Wei. So these are all pseudonyms. No, nobody's real name is happening here. And according to Fiji, Teacher Wei had extracted resources from him as though he were a captive. They were not members of the same lineage. They were both Mulsu. And the, the way in which he did this is he did not deliver Fiji's salary or some other promised payments for ritual texts that were part of uh, Fiji's own family's collection that were to be brought and translated to the Institute. It, it was a deal that they struck. So Fiji got upset with this situation for nearly a year. Um, he sort of didn't know what to do. And then suddenly he spotted the opportunity of using me as leverage against Teacher Way. When I arrived at the Institute, I, I didn't realize that these were some background situations here. I was just seeking a village naively to conduct my research on Mulsu religion. Um, and what happened is Fiji drew me into his home without me having been aware of the institutional struggles. So this all began in this way. There was a Mulsu banquet hosted on my arrival in Milan County. It was attended by Fiji, Teacher Wei, and some other researchers. Now, at that banquet, there was a tense atmosphere between Fiji and Teacher Wei, but Fiji cheerfully volunteered to have me carry out research in his home village, and he agreed to drive me and a Chinese contact that accompanied me out to uh, the county on a reconnaissance trip. So the following day, we were all cheerful. We drove to the village, and Fiji had arranged to slaughter a massive pig in our honor. And there was a banquet hosted, uh, or, or we out had some sort of feasting when we ate this pig, and Fiji came up and explained to me Link's he started off with a sort of religious talk that he thought would appeal, links between the shape of his priestly cap and the cosmos. Uh, before he complained about Teacher Wei and expressed his wish for me to remain in the village for the rest of my life, studying Mulsu shamanic customs as his employer. <laughs> so and he said that uh, Teacher Wei had, without any explanation, paid him one-third of the salary originally promised. He withheld copyright money to his father's texts. 
and Fiji was translating these uh, for the Institute. He also admitted that shortly after his father's death, which had happened just a year before my arrival, he had taken a six-month leave of absence from the Institute, where he rested at his village home, um, and he wanted to stay there permanently. So I was a bit concerned. My contact, Chai's contact, was a bit concerned. But we talked with him for a few months. Everybody had been drinking a lot at the party. And he conceded, actually, you know what? His life really is centered on the translation job. So that his nephew, who regularly lived in the village, he would be my mentor in the shamanic studies when I returned for a long-term stay, because I, I wanted to learn the script as best I could. And everyone who heard the conversation passed it off. This kind of hardly intelligible alcohol-influenced talk. But upon returning to the county center, uh, I, I studied the language under teacher way for a fortnight, and then was driven by Fiji on a two-hour trek back to his village, just me, not the Chinese contact. She returned to the capital of the province. And I imagine he would be there for just a few days, but when we got to the village, Fiji rapidly appointed himself as my mentor, telling me I should consider him to be an older brother. This is a lineage talk. And he refused to return to the institute. Instead, he introduced me to the other local priests, and his friends, and he gruffly sent his nephew away when he came to teach me the uh, script. And through his prominent village status, he managed to make me into a kind of what I, I call a captive guest, as well as his newfound employer, and detained me from leaving the village so that he had leverage against Teach Away. Uh, Fiji had heard that Teach Away would be replaced soon by a successor at the Institute, so he said he was awaiting this turnover in the village. Well, I reminded Fiji repeatedly in vain about the agreed plans for my research, but he just brushed it off. So, during the course of my stay, I found that Fiji had learned the full range of ancient Mulsu script forms from his locally famous father. And he learned it over the course of many years. It's, it's, it's like, they actually, Mulsu say, it's like going to university. It's a lifelong process. And his knowledge about the script and cosmology were widely respected as accurate and thorough. While his illustrious pedigree brought him several disciples, and the family's reputation as religious experts, also attracted a government invitation in 2003 for Fiji to start the translation work in the county center as part of the Chinese effort to promote small nationality studies. So at the time of Fiji's appointment, his own father, who was actually the primary expert, he was still alive. And a sum of money was promised to his father in exchange for access to his sacred texts, which survived, because the irony, as Fiji pointed out, they survived being burnt in his own courtyard during the Cultural Revolution. Uh, that was because his father had gone off as a, there was just a shepherd task for the day and hidden them in a mountain crevice, the same kind of ways they tend to hide um, effigies of the deceased after the post-mortuary rites is a special kind of way to find this. So anyway, Fiji was employed to translate the text into Chinese, publishing on most religious thoughts and practices. And the new job required that he relocate to the county center where he rented a small room. And that meant he detached himself except for weekend visits from the, the clan village home where he shared the blood relationship and geographical relationship with his close lineage members. Now his offer soon turned out to be a disappointment. Disillusioned by the lower wages and the postponed payment for his father's books, Fiji suffered some health problems from being overworked, and he didn't receive compensation. Adding insult to injury, he said that when his father died of heartbreak because he had lost his eldest son just a few months before that to cancer, Teacher Wei began to treat him as an unimportant person. And if Fiji's view, Teacher Wei took advantage of him because he was an orphan at this point, he could no longer use the weight of his father's living presence and lineage prestige as leverage. Nor, by the way, could he use his elder brother's help. His other, elder brother knew the sort of government people that had uh, financed the project. So, worse yet, Teacher Wei had lost the father's texts inside of his office cupboard and withheld the payment for them. And feeling powerless, Fiji complained that he had been offered a permanent contract, or he had not been offered it, rather, that would fully attach him to the Institute. And he was upset that Teacher Wei had received the first authorship on a volume by his own translation team. He said he didn't know the ancient text, he couldn't do anything. And he concluded, therefore, that Teacher Wei treated his father's text and himself, the interpreter, as captives. So Fiji took an unpaid leave of absence and went to his village home, where he dreamed of the Nolsu script on his computer screen at work. However, his dreams, the script appeared in gargantuan or tiny minute size and flashed intolerably at him, reminding him of his failing eyesight and the migraine headaches that he got from being overworked. These were specific health complaints. The ghosts of Fiji's father and eldest brother appeared in these dreams, admonishing him not to overtax himself of the translation work. But when he recovered and returned to the Institute, Teacher Wei withheld his salary once more. And a month passed, he got even more upset. And that's when I finally arrived at the Institute. So he secretly decided to leave the Institute once more, 
taking me to the village home as the captive guest. And hoping to dispense with what had become by then his village reputation of being just a translator, Fiji complained to me that on several occasions Tiji Wei called him on his mobile phone while he was holding the ceremony in the village and demanded that he immediately return to the county center for the translation of work. So there was a clash between his life as a practicing uh, ritual specialist in the village with his lineage members and being what he considered to be the translating lackey for Tiji Wei, and all of this underscored feelings of being treated as a captive. Now, not long after I settled into the village, I observed that Fiji was violently mourning the loss of his father. Although he divined that his father had, after death, been transformed into the best possible thing a person could become, that is both a guardian spirit for the whole house, and a special spirit that the text-reading shaman priest can invoke in ceremonies, this transformation was not yet stabilized because the final post-mortuary rite remained to be held. So there's a gap of usually one to three years between the funeral and the post-mortem rite, and this is sort of a liminal time when the, the ghost of the deceased is not yet stabilized into the, the good thing and can be a bad thing, and stuff doesn't go well for you until this is done. Um, and he couldn't do this without having the finances, so this is also another reason he's upset with not getting his payments. Very expensive rites. So uh, what happened during the time when I was in the village? Fiji made astrological predictions, and he received numerous dreams where his father and eldest brother asked him to hold the rites that would harness their systems and overcome teacher way. And several of these dreams revealed that Fiji's father approved of Fiji teaching me Nulsu text-reading shamanic practices that traditionally are taught to men only and ideally pass from father to son, maybe uncle to nephew, uh, and it certainly should be from a Nulsu to another Nulsu person. Yet Fiji said his father took a magnanimous view about this breach of tradition because my research would, quote, help Fiji propagate his teaching lineage within the international sphere. This is sort of an unprecedented thing. And Fiji said that by making me a, quote, unquote, Oxford teacher, his shamanic student, he had burst through the heavens. That's a direct quotation. Uh, that, by the way, is linked up to shamanic flight. It was meant to be like this kind of very, very sort of how can you say, redolent metaphor, you know, they like to speak this way. So about a fortnight after I settled into the village, Fiji actually gave a name-giving ceremony to me. And he proudly indicated the portrait of his father up on the living room wall. He said he would give me his father's name, modifying it just slightly by adding the particle for woman to the end of it. And waxing lyrical, Fiji said this name meant leaping into the heavens and have his flight coming again. It was the most honorary name he could imagine. He added, I'd always return to his home after going to England and America, where I would write about him, because he had drawn me into his lineage from which I could not leave. This was the capturing motif. Now, my Nolsu name reflected both the purported international fame that I bring to Fiji and the changes I would undergo as a member of his lineage. According to Barbara Bodenhorn, an anthropologist colleague in Cambridge, this dual capacity of the name reflects what she calls the who of the name, which not only implies identity, but also sociality that may potentially exist well beyond the immediate universe of the name holder, meaning the name is a sort of travel and carry, but it also reflects the I of the name, which implies a constantly transformative identity, which is still some kind of identity. This is her quote. So tellingly, the dual capacity of the name echoed the Nolsi dual notion that the lineage and the soul spider should be attached to the person while it's moving freely in line with the person's body. This, this is my argument. Now, certainly it was an honor to receive this typhoon name as a contrast to how Nolsu's slaves, who are usually nameless, were mentioned in passing in people's stories about family, marriage, and work, and in the formulaic recitations of class structure of Nolsu society before the reform period in 1956. So poignant examples of actual Nolsu names, these are all still in use, they're slave names, Include, whoops, there we go. Uh, slave Lord, Liverpool, Jimu, Slaves Lot, Vipul, Clan Lord, Vixi, Clan Branch, Vika, Clan, Vidu, Clan Gathers, Viver, Clan Included, and Vikua, Clan Surrounding, so as in surrounded by the clan. These are names of actual people that just show you the importance between slaves and lineage and in the connections as well to the notions of gathering things in, having attachments. Um, slaves in particular. I'll, I'll talk more about that next week. Right, so since my name, my most name, entailed the lineage and clan affiliation, together with patronymic genealogy, I wanted to watch for how it might overturn my condition of being the captive guest, but I actually then become completely sort of like one of them. But although Fiji and other shamans in the village called me by this new revered name, many women in the village stifled laughs when they heard it or said it aloud. 
So Fiji's wife and a neighbor woman confessed. I asked them because I was curious. They laughed because the name was so high-flown and masculine. Instead of reinforcing my would-be attachment to the lineage, the name underscored the impossibility, at least to most of the villagers besides Fiji, who had his own sort of, you know, politics. It, to them, it was impossible for me to be integrated into Nolsa genealogy so quickly and on such elevated terms. It just never has happened historically, especially with somebody so obviously an outsider. So what my name expressed was Fiji's dream of trumping teacher way, but it didn't reflect the other villagers' view that teacher way had made Fiji into a captive shamanic translator. So, in fact, for them, what my Nolsa name really reinforced was the view that I was Fiji's fancy captive. Yet another extension. And intriguingly, uh, Sue Benson uh, points out that African slaves that had been brought to the 18th century Britain were also likely to be named fancifully, often with names culled from classical antiquity, such as Scipio Africanus, Caesar Nero, or more commonly Pompeii. And she says such names invited pointed comparisons between the appearance and circumstances of the slave and the illustrious personage referenced by his name. There are actually names to call of Joe. Uh, you know, in this case, I don't know if it's necessary to severe that, but in her case, it's names where the grandiosity was meant to humiliate the person. So, note the contrast between the ironic hospitality that I was receiving as a captive guest and the no-joke hospitality, which, to cite sort of rather classic text, Julian Pitt Rivers had suggested is given in his studies of hospitality to the ordinary guest, who no longer, to quote, can be freely insulted, for he becomes one under... Uh, who, who under no conditions can be disparaged. So I'm talking about a different kind of reception here, a different kind of hospitality here, and a different kind of sort of field experience. Now, Fiji's dream of using me as the vehicle for augmenting his status became particularly clear about three weeks after this, when he held a drinking party with me and a local school teacher at his home, and he complained about some differences in everybody's education. After uh, an hour afterward, there had been some card playing, and it ended, and he burst into the guest room where I was staying, carrying the household chest filled with his father's religious texts. This is where you keep all the most precious items in the home, a certain kind of chest. And he sifted through the texts with his hands, shouting that they were a reservoir of priestly knowledge that he had not shown to anyone, including teacher Wei. So Fiji was displaying his religious capital to me, declaring that nowhere else would I find better access to knowledge about these text-based practices. His wife calmed him down, everyone went to sleep, except for Fiji, who made astrological predictions all night, selecting the date for his father and eldest brother's post-mortuary rituals. This was finally going to come to pass. The next morning, I suggested going to the county center to rest for a little while, but Fiji retorted, are you planning to leave the village? And then he pleaded for me to stay, saying I'd become a part of the family. He denied any cars were available for travel. Actually, it was true that they were, but he was telling all the villagers that they don't let her go. He declared he wouldn't be drinking anytime soon, so I stayed. And over the next few days, Fiji confirmed that he had set the post-mortuary rites for uh, sort of mid-November in line with his own astrological predictions. And cheerfully, he said his father and eldest brother had appeared in yet another dream, thanking him and saying they were really looking forward to eating those sacrificial animals. But on the evening before the post-mortuary rites had started, Fiji's drinking took a turn for the worse, and he tried to hold the rite for his father all on his own independently. This was an innovative thing. Uh, but the right was, this innovative right was dangerously anachronistic, meaning it was started 12 hours too early. It was undertaken in a state of inebriation, which, unlike moderate drinking, uh, the Mulsusay can provoke the deceased into becoming or acting like the ghost that saps the household's resources. So his wife took away his divining book. This led to a struggle for a flashlight that Fiji was using to chant from his book in the room. And under the revolving torchlight, Fiji's scattered ritual texts swirled before everyone. It was in a small, sort of log cabin room. And in seeing this, it mimicked his oft-told dreams about the flashing computer screen and the translation work, the same visual image. Eventually, Fiji was led to his bedroom. He slumped into a brief sleep, but he woke up and saw a ghost hovering above him. So he grabbed that shaman's cloak and his hat he was telling me about originally, and stormed out of the bedroom to the nearby cremation grounds for his father to commiserate with his ghost there. As some days later, everything cleared up, Fiji explained that the ghost in his bedroom was his great uncle, a powerful shaman who was taken away from the clan village to Lijiang City, it's a nearby city, that happened during the Cultural Revolution he was never heard from again. The ghost appeared because Fiji had been drinking earlier that same day with his nephew, and everybody says that ghost follows him whenever there's a drinking party. There's this kind of thing. 
So Fiji attracted the wrong ghost with his drinking. The ghost had attached himself to Fiji. This is again the sort of capturing type spider-like metaphor. It nearly made a botched job of rights and undermined his father's health. Nevertheless, over the following two days, the post-mortuary rites, the proper ones were held, they stabilized his father's and elder brother's transformations into guardian spirits, and Fiji felt he'd overturned Teacher Wei's captive hold on him. He prepared to return to the Institute within a fortnight, collecting his salary and the copyright money for his father's text, even though Teacher Wei had not yet been replaced and said that money would be pending for some time. But Fiji declared he'd get the money, even if he had to drag Teacher Wei by the arm, as yet another captive employer to the local government and demand restitution. In confessing he would soon leave me to carry out fieldwork without his regular mentorship, Fiji then and only then finally revealed to me the finer Molson notions about the soul spider. So I actually didn't know this background information <laughs> until the very end. I was just giving it to you at the start because it makes it easier to follow the story. So clear evidence that the Nolsu host their own soul spiders is found, as I was saying, in the soul uh, recalling ceremony, and it actually is an ambushing of a lost soul spider. And it works like this. The soul spider is said to be gone. You sit at the edge of the household threshold and prepare these different items here. It's often a lacquered box. Uh, it can otherwise be a basket. And you have a long, thin white thread, which is meant explicitly to be like a spider's web thread. And you tie to the end of it this special kind of grass here. Um, and it's a, it's a type of grass that grows um, at the riverbanks. And in Molson myth, there was the idea that the people had been migrating at one point, and they went down into a riverbed, and suddenly there was a flash flood, because the river had otherwise been dry. And the only way they were able to get out of it was to grab this very long, sturdy grass and pull themselves out like this. And the interesting thing is that this grass uh, in the dialect of the area I was at, because the language has become a little bit different to the classical Mosu, sounds to them homologous with the soul spider. So it's actually considered to be a soul spider grass. So it's starting to, there's some slippage conceptually in, in what this is. So it's a lure. It's a lure to the soul spider. And it's as though to grab onto this rescuing type of grass, which is also moved up to the notion of the spider itself. Right, so. You, you put this little thread outside the door, you cajole the spider into the home with promises of a warm heart and some good food. You contrast, you say the outdoors is so cold, the little soul spider, oh, but it's so warm here, there's nothing deep there, oh, but there's so many things deep here, please come back, etc., etc. Um, and these sun promises and the web-like thread are, in fact, bait. There seem to be that. Um, eventually, this soul spider comes up. And when it does, people will see it. They'll see it mount the thread and start to get on it and walk up it. And what they do is they start to get the thread behind the spider and they roll it up, almost cocooning it in its weight, and they put it into the little box or little basket where there's some meat or some fat for tea for several days. There's a little cloth that's meant to be a little blanket. Sometimes they put a needle inside, uh, and the reason why is it's, you know, they're supposed to open it several days later on a good astrological day, and then the soul spider willingly, subserviently comes out and reattaches itself to your body. If that needle moves, when you look for it, it means, yeah, it was ready to come. It was ready to come out. Otherwise, maybe you should close it in a hurry. So, okay. And actually, one other thing to say is everyone who attends the ceremony watches the thread. They all try to sight the spider. Not everybody can see it because it sort of goes in and out of visibility like this. Uh, but nonetheless, eventually they catch it. Now, I observed a similar um, basket or box-induced attachment during the post-mortuary rites for Fiji's father and eldest brother. These rites I talked about in the village that fixed everything up. And Fiji explained to me then that the deceased is invited home during the rites, which is several years after the funeral. And at that point, the officiating priest puts an effigy of the deceased, and where appropriate, also an effigy of his or her already deceased spouse, into a so-called spirit vessel. It's a cylindrical container handmade of hawthorn wood. And actually, Fiji carved this effigy for his own father. And then he put it onto a bamboo mat, which represents a bed for the soul, and suspended it from his ceiling to produce a basket-like, kind of web-like shape in his home. It would be there for a while until you put it in a special place outdoors. It's a final resting place. And the rite ensures the deceased will return to the original Mosu clan location, or the land of the ancestors, which is called Zizipu, and it's near present-day Jotong, which is in northeast Yunnan, for anyone who knows this region. <coughs> but Fiji also confirmed, interestingly, that when reaching ancestral land, the deceased is stably transformed into a guardian spirit. 
who thenceforth may be simultaneously attached to the home. So you can be residing in this sort of afterlife location, and residing in the home is a guardian spirit that helps the descendants to obtain the fullness of life. Uh, moving on, Fiji told me that there is a Nolsu saying that spiders are the animals which eat the most meat because they regularly catch insects in their webs. And also, these, the priest vocation, like he is, these people eat the most meat because in seasons where Nolsu do not usually uh, slaughter the livestock, the priest who travels house to house on a daily basis would hold some rituals where they would always have a share of the sacrificial meat. Anyway, he also smugly noted that spiders are prolific in the shaman's home and commented on how many large spiders graced his household. Personally, I'm, I'm afraid of them. I'm difficult, but nonetheless. And he mused also that Nolsu sociality entails a ranking of different persons, reckon in terms of who is the most spider-like. Okay, and to make this point, he cited a Nolsu proverb in two different versions, and he used Mandarin Chinese because he couldn't remember the Nolsu original at that point. He said, Men in Ted's reading shamans are of the heavens, women in the home are of the earth. That was number one. Okay, he then gave an elaborate discussion of this. The version, this version of the Proverbs stresses a hierarchy of male-female relations because men who read shamanic texts are associated with the heavens. So the Nolsu script for the B in Bimol, Bimol means uh, the, the priest in their language, but it's also sort of been grafted as a term into Mandarin Chinese. They just sort of, you know, have to borrow the term. This, this script, in the Nulsu script, resembles the flying shaman. Uh, I can actually just draw you quickly here. There's quite a number of versions, but most... I mean, it's very, very simple, more kind of, um, what can you say, modern version of the script. He thinks it looks like it's a flight. That was his real piece. Uh, and he says it resembles a flying shaman, even an airplane. So he's seeing this sort of movement for the men. But women are associated with agricultural work. However, both of these things contribute to the fullness of life. Uh, this was his view. He, he had a rather sort of harsh amount to women, I'll say. But the alternative proverb uh, version reads, Ordinary men in text reading shamans travel to the outside, women stay inside the home. And here he stressed that men lure business prospects into the home, like a spider that leaves its den to hunt and returns home with its prey. But women, by contrast, build up strong homesteads, like the kind of spider that rebuilds and expands its web. So Nolsu men and women work together in the husband and wife team of the neolocal household. Uh, that's how it works. And when I was faced with these revelations about Nolsu, you could call it maybe spiderhood, and Fiji's confidence that I'd become attached to his lineage at home, he was getting ready to leave himself, I suggested that I make a brief trip to the province capital to consult a specialist on Nolsu astrology. He knew this person. In fact, Fiji recommended that I visit this guy early in my stay. And to my delight, Fiji agreed, and I secretly prepared my departure from the village. That was the only way to get out, actually. So I, I had to lure my way out also with my, my talk about meeting the special astrologist. Okay, so uh, I hope that doesn't creep anyone out too much. Uh, to conclude, uh, I, I just want to go back to the, some of the themes at the start of this talk, where I discussed the role of the ethnographic dream and anthropological fieldwork. And as I've tried to show from this case study, there, are, there were several layers of dreams at work in this case. We had on the one hand Fiji's dream of building the fame, the fortune, and the prestige through his job at the Ethnological Institute. He'd originally hoped that this work would increase his status in the village and even attract further invitations to hold ceremonies for the locals. But over time, Fiji realized the translation work clashed with his ritual work because the Institute required him to be away from the village for such long stretches at a time and not to mention these phone calls that summoned him to suddenly leave the village. And so Fiji realized he was receiving far fewer invitations to hold ceremonies than he had before he got the new job. Moreover, with the death of Fiji's father and elder brother, both of whom had actually been instrumental to Fiji getting the job at his institute, Fiji felt that the translation work had become less rewarding and increasingly tenuous. He worried all the time that the prestige and fortune he built up through the translation job was dissolving before his eyes, just as he was losing the invitations to hold the rituals. Um, and next week I'm going to be talking about the, what I call an economy of war deals, which is an all-or-nothing type of thing. And this is how they move up through the vacation of ranks in a meritocratic way, or drop altogether. And he was worried he was on the cusp of just everything bottoming out right in front of his eyes. So actually, Fiji was carefully observing the weakening uh, of, of not only these prospects for his vacational status, but his lineage attachments locally over time. 
And uh, this, I, I submit, is why we happily captured uh, myself in a spider-like fashion, bringing me into the web of relations that he had in his home village, and even giving me the name to establish me more firmly there. It was sort of by proxy to also establish himself as this fancy person. Now, for my part, I gradually accepted the what I call the captive guest condition, following into step with what Caroline Humphrey calls the tone of hospitality, which she says is evident in a depersonalized repertoire of, quote, things that are done, just the way people tend to work, and sort of an unspoken felt tone of timbre relations. <clears throat> because a tone of most of hospitality is what I call intimate trickery, where people are lured into the local web of relations and captured there, I found myself caught in a double bind, whereby challenging the captive guest role, rather than pretending not to notice it, could actually be more likely to compromise the ethically low profile ethnography. We wonder why did you have to take off so dramatically and you know, they made such efforts for me not to leave by saying there's no car available, I'm so very sorry, or we can't manage to find our way down the highlands on this occasion or something like this. So in a sense, I, I, I argue that I unwittingly became what Roy Wagner calls the quote, double agents of hospitality, since my Mulsuit hosts offered me the essentially non-reciprocal captive guest relation, which, to quote him again, it strains the dynamics of hospitality, I would add also pillar ethics, from the inside rather than the outside of the relation. So all I could do was endure the ironic kind of instability of this strain, as I reflected in the field and afterward on how it affected my so-called ethnographic dream of researching innovative religious practices among the Nulsu. Well, I certainly found some of those. Um, so some closing marks about contingency maybe are in order, but like I said, I'll pick up on this next week. I, I think it's fair to say that nothing in fieldwork is fully guaranteed. And in fact, fieldwork is an excellent example of the kind of experience that is quintessentially contingent and unpredictable in nature. Like fame, honor, and fortune, fieldwork is filled with ups and downs over time. And getting the research results we'd originally set out to find, or just getting some kind of great ethnographic case studies more generally, requires spending good lengths of time in the field, having a keen sense of where to look when, being linked up to interesting and useful local contacts, and I really also think living in a local household rather than your own apartment, room, or whatever, just because you're constantly exposed to them and vice versa, helps to break down certain barriers. So great uh, fieldwork results are also then a bit rarer to get hold of, and they bring us then a social anthropologist status or prestige. They're also a contingent thing. Uh, I believe just Roy Wagner has a saucy term for this that he calls the Indiana Jones factor. <laughs> so uh, next week, what I want to do is dive even more deeply into the Nolsa ethnography, looking at the intricate and contingent nature of fame building. And that lecture would be speaking also to the theme of ethnographic and other dreams. And all of that is in preparation for the very last two uh, seminar lecture whatevers on ethics and the irony of environmental politics. So. Hope to maybe see you then.